Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Super thankful today, and of course I have to say grateful today. Uh, one of her books is called Grateful, by the way. Uh, shameless plug. Um, uh, Diana Butler Bass is joining us again. I, I, I can't say enough about her work uh, and how it's spoken to me over the years. My first uh, book of hers that really touched me was Grounded, uh, just a magical book on spirituality uh, here on earth. It was I was so grateful to have crossed paths with her work at that time. Uh, I reached out to her and sent her an email, and I was like, hey, I have this random podcast. Would you come chat with us? And she said, sure. So every few months or maybe a couple times a year, we swap some emails, and she's got a new book coming out uh, in the world called Freeing Jesus. And uh, it's a beautiful read as well. And I'm super excited to get the chance to chat with her today. Uh, And even she and I are having this video uh, conference today. So it's fun. So Diana, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's really nice to be here. And it is good to see your face. (laughs) Uh, Isn't that wonderful that, (laughs) you know, here we are pandemic isolation, but in some ways we have seen people that we've only heard before. So it's, it's a gift. Yep. Yep. It is. Well, super grateful to have you here today. And um, maybe for some of our listeners that are kind of new to our community and haven't crossed paths with you and your work before, uh, when you introduce yourself and that work in the world, where do you begin? Oh my gosh, in some ways that's a that's a huge question, you know, <laughs> what do you say about your yourself? Uh, I think that the best way to understand, you know, who I am and and what I'm trying to do is that I I am a a Christian and uh, sometimes people say now, oh, you know, how can you say that? You know, because the word Christian has kind of bad connotations. Yeah. But um I'm the sort of Christian that understands uh, the meaning of being Christian as a a journey, an open path, a pilgrimage where we go through life um, with sort of willing hearts Mm -hmm. to open ourselves to whoever else is on the journey and um, just uh, learning and and, uh, going to places that, take courage and risk, whether that's in our own souls or in the streets, um, doing the work of justice. So, uh, that is probably the best way to describe who I am, person of faith, who is a Christian, who understands faith as a journey and not a closed sort of product or a, a a slammed door where all questions are answered Mm. to me, all, all questions that arise on the path are, worthy questions. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, if it's okay, I, I may say you are one of our vil- village elders here and teaching us to keep keep opening the doors, keep exploring. I think if I could say what, what's the essence of your writing, it's almost like keep going, like just keep going, keep opening the doors, mm-hmm. keep, stay curious, stay out of judgment. Um, and that's been such a gift to me. So, so thank you for that. Well, I think that comes from the fact that early in my career, I spent 14 years as a college professor. And so there's Diana, who is always the teacher. And Mm. one of the best things about being a teacher is the fact that great teachers are great learners. Mm. And so those things are just so deep in myself that I even forget to forget them about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I I forget to tell people, oh yeah, yeah, I was a college professor for a long time. And so, so to have that uh, vision of the world and that set of practices around curiosity um, is really fundamental to the work that I do and the work I invite people into um, in the world. Beautiful. So here we are with uh, your latest work in the world, Freeing Jesus. Beautiful title, by the way. Uh, Kind of loaded if you don't know where it's going. Um, why, Why this book? Why now? I mean, I know you, you, you begin the book with kind of the story, but um, here we are. Hopefully, we're moving into a post-pandemic. What, what was it about uh, your story and this season of life to kind of write and put this new piece into the world? 
this is a really strange book for me because it, it is an unplanned book, mm. which is interesting. Mm. I suppose a little like an unplanned pregnancy <laughs> if I was a little younger. Um, and what had happened was you know, in 2019, I was talking to my publisher and we'd come to an agreement about what my next book would be. And the next book um, was to be a sort of handbook about theology that went into the world with people. Mm. Uh, and uh, the subtitle, I don't know what the title of that book would have been, but the subtitle was An Unsystematic Theology. Wow. And the idea was to write a book that still introduced people to theological themes, but nevertheless was speaking primarily to folks who had left church behind. Mm. Or people who are sort of on the edge, you know, so should I stay? Should I go? Why should I stay? And so, so that's what I was going to do. And I sat down summer 2019 to write that book. And I said, where should I begin? And I, I, I for some reason, I thought the Jesus chapter of that book would be the easiest place to start. Hmm. I thought, oh, that that's easy. I can write about Jesus. No, no, no problem. And uh, I, I wrote and, um, I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And before I knew it, I had 70, 80 pages of wow. stuff about Jesus. And some of which shows up here and some of which uh, wound up in other places uh, in sermons and things. But the, the point that I got to was like, oh my gosh, you know, if I'm going to write a book about theology and I wind up with 80 pages about Jesus, how long is this book going to be? <laughs> It's not a little handbook yeah. for people in yeah. systematic theology anymore. Yes. So I called up the um, the publisher and I said, I don't think I'm writing a book about unsystematic theology or anything else. I think I'm writing a book um, about Jesus. And they were like, what? And we you know, talked back and forth a bit and came to the conclusion that this was a book that wanted to write itself. Well, well yeah, so many of the people I interview when they talk about uh, their latest book, it, it's kind of like, this is, this is the one that wanted to be written. Yeah. And I haven't in a sense had that experience before. I've always had a lot of clarity when I sat down and yeah. to do a project and, and certainly they were all books that wanted to be written, but I, I knew that in advance. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I did not know in advance at all mm. that I was going to write a book about Jesus. And I was a little nervous about it for well, a variety of reasons. One is that a good number of my readers understand themselves to be humanist. Um, mm. I have a lot of readers who are very post-religious. I also have a lot of Jewish readers. So I worried about putting the word Jesus, you know, on the cover that it would scare people away mm. who've always loved my work. So that, that was a little bit of hesitancy. Um, and then the other hesitancy was, you know, here in this room with all these books, um, over in the corner there is my Jesus bookshelf, and it has <laughs> the Jesus corner. It has a lot of books on it, and so the question is, what can you write about Jesus that hasn't already been written? Mm. And uh, and of course, um, you know, my my academic self yep. was trained in American religion, a little bit of sociology of religion, a lot of history of religion, and so New Testament. Um, was not my thing, yeah. you know? So, so I wondered, am I entering onto territory that I'm going to make a lot of mistakes or uh, people will say, well, how is she qualified? So, yeah. Yeah. so, so that's where the book came from. Yeah. It was, and it was a bit nerve wracking to sure. make those decisions. Sure. And in a way it's kind of your, like your personal Jesus memoir, right? Like your, your journey with, you know, and you begin really focused in on the who, like who, who is Jesus? That's kind of where this starts. I, I feel like we need to begin, though, at kind of this experience that, uh, you know, this get me out of here experience. I guess, can we call it mystical? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but you want to share the story where you, how you kind of begin the book? Sure. Well, you call it a, a sort of Jesus memoir. That's exactly what this book is. Yeah. It's a, a memoir. That, and that's what I had to offer right. to yeah. writing a book about Jesus. The thing I have that other people didn't have was I had was my your, experience. That's right. Your experience. Totally. And, and so that's where it, it launches. And um, 
the first story of the book, once I realized I was writing a book about Jesus, I just knew that I wanted to use this story. And it came from uh, 2013. At the time, I was working on Grounded, yep. uh, the book that, that you really love. I love that book, too. And I was sort of stuck. You know, authors get stuck. Hmm. You, you get to a point where sometimes something isn't coming out the way you want it to. And um, I... I I felt kind of, I also felt kind of angry at that point hmm. in my life, a little bit angry at God and sort of angry at the church too. And so I sort of wanted to dislodge that in order to get the book to be as beautiful as it could be. So one day I was sort of wrestling in prayer and I was kind of getting nowhere in the wrestling. So I thought, where, where can I go that I, I love and that might help me see things differently? And I live in Alexandria, Virginia, which is right across the river from Washington, D.C. So I got in my car and I drove up to the Washington National Cathedral, you know, which is this beautiful, huge neo-Gothic space with stained glass windows and all kinds of things. And I thought, well, you know, this is a good place as any to wrestle with God. <laughs> and and uh, it was a weekday, so that I knew there wouldn't be many people there. And um, I went to my favorite chapel at the cathedral, which is the Chapel of the Holy Spirit, just lovely little side chapel with a beautiful altar, lots of pictures of doves and angels. And um, in the in the center, right above the altar, there's this huge painting of Jesus by the American artist N.C. Wyeth. And the painting's about 100 years old. It's 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 a really lovely altar painting. Yeah. So so there I was uh, kneeling in front of the big the big painting of Jesus and saying to God, where are you? What's this project about? I can't, I can't really hear myself think, and I'm kind of feeling angry at the church. And, and um, all this was just kind of roiling inside when I heard a voice, a literal voice say, get me out of here. And it was so distinctive that I thought, someone else was in the chapel wow. and so i looked over my shoulder and nope i was all by myself and so i kind of went back into praying and i heard the voice the second time get me out of here and at, at that point i look up and i went uh jesus is <laughs> is, is that you <laughs> and then the voice said a third time get me out of here and by that point you know i was wow. just utterly freaked out because i'm hearing this sort of out loud voice right. which is atypical for me i mean i have very i have a lot of mystic sort of impulses as you know sure. from reading yeah. my other books and so i i you know when i say that i have heard the voice in the past or or that god spoke it you know that was an impression or an mm. intuition or hearing you know sort of like god in the wind or um being aware of god's presence and leading yeah. like in a sunrise or sunset so, yeah. or, or in music or or a, litur a liturgy so pretty predictable kinds of ways of being able to listen and hear something that resembles a voice mm. but this was not that this was a voice mm. and so i was like oh, get me out of here get me out of here what am i going to do you know <laughs> should i should i steal the painting should I... <laughs> it won't fit in my purse you know and um i i Look, I looked around again, and there was actually at this point a priest way, way down the aisles at the Washington National Cathedral. And so I, I, I literally, I did not want to talk to a priest. I, you know, and I thought if the painting starts talking while a priest is here, I'm just like no more good. <laughs> and so, so I literally, I bolted out of the cathedral and I drove home. And I told my husband what happened that night, and. Um, from then on, uh, Richard, my husband, uh, he refer refers to this episode as that time that Jesus asked you to spring him from the slammer. <laughs> and uh, so that happened in 2013. Yeah. And I sort of held on to that story. Mm -hmm. I've only told it very, very rarely in public um, because you never know how people are going to respond yeah. to stories about out loud God voices. Yeah. Um, and um Yet I knew when I wrote this book that I wanted that to be the 
first story in yeah. this book. Yeah, yeah. Almost, um, and, and I use that word, you know, memoir when describing this. It's, I, I feel like you're, you're reintroducing Jesus maybe in different seasons of your life, uh, but, but you're also in, inviting a new Jesus, right? Like this, this get me out of here uh, is, is maybe um, your way to help the masses maybe re-understand some things that have been misunderstood about who we talk about when we talk about Jesus. Yeah, the, uh, since this happened almost 10 years ago now, you know, I've had a little bit of time to think about it. Right. You know, well, what, what in the world was that directive about? And the way that the directive unfolds itself in this book is I basically am saying there's three levels at which we have encrusted Jesus or, you know, how we've, how we've restricted hmm. who Jesus is essentially put Jesus in boxes yep. or yep. in prison as it were. And um, the, it's a little breezy in here. So please forgive me. I'm, I'm messing with my hair a little bit. Um, so, uh, so there's three ways that we put uh, Jesus in, in, um, in boxes is one in our own personal lives. You know, we, we sort of get to a point, if you're a Christian and you get to a sort of point with your spiritual life, you think, Oh, that's Jesus. I know who Jesus is. And through the, the arc of the memoir I unfold, I show how, yes, there were certain images of Jesus in my life that were satisfactory for a time. Right. But then if I had, when I held on to those images, they became, they, they, imprisoned both Jesus and me. Mm. And so at different times in my life, I've had to let Jesus out of the cages that I put Jesus into. Yeah. And so that's one level of freeing Jesus, get me out of here. But the other level is certainly religious organizations, churches, traditions, um, make demands on how we understand who Jesus is, um, understand Jesus through this interpretation, understand Jesus through these creeds, understand Jesus in this particular uh, sort of theological lens. And if you have questions about that, the problem is with you, mm -hmm. um, not with the limits of the religious tradition. And so there is an argument here that urges um, religious traditions to understand how they've encrusted Jesus and to loosen up, you know, mm. set, set, set Jesus free um, into, into the world. And then the third way that's a bit more subtle, but I know that it's part of the narrative is that our culture has put um, a certain, really, a, I think a prison yeah. around who Jesus is. And that prison is political, it's social, it's theological, and it, it, really has one sort of cultural message about who this person is that Christians call Jesus. And if you don't buy that, um, you're not a Christian. And I would also argue that that cage, that cultural cage of American Christianity um, has led to really devastating um, consequences in our uh, spheres of doing justice and also in the ways in which we relate to people of other faiths. Yeah, yeah. So, so those are the three levels of which I'm urging people that Jesus needs to be freed. Yeah. Personal, churchy, ecclesial, to use the fancier word, and then this social, political, cultural yeah. uh, level Beautiful. in which Jesus is caught up. Yep, well said. Um, so let's kind of walk through this journey a bit uh, of the book. Mm -hmm. and, and you, you know, before our call we kind of riffed back and forth about this idea of spiral dynamics, uh, which for any of our listeners watching or listening right now, uh, that's a whole nother topic. Uh, but it basically kind of maps out uh, evolution of consciousness, if you will. Um, and, I, and I got that sense with this book that, that Jesus, uh, Jesus changed but stayed the same and 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 was was a uh uh the figure that moved with you as you evolved as you got older as you had new experiences as you saw the world um and the first one you know was just kind of friend which is this very childlike way uh, of knowing jesus so when when we kind of waltz through these steps 
um, let's just kind of start with the friend concept and, and, and how that worked for you at a very young stage. I was thinking very specifically about spiritual development literature when I wrote this book, uh, both uh, Spiral Dynamics and also an older book called Stages of Faith by a fellow named James Fowler, and uh, some of the literature that's developed around women's psychology and spirituality. Um, And so so I am very aware of that literature, and I I know it pretty well. Uh, It's as a teacher, sure. that was when I first read it, you know, it was very helpful to think about, you know, how my classrooms full of students, uh, where they might be, you right. know, when they walked into a classroom. Right. So, so I, that's when I started reading that kind of literature was about 30 years ago. So, so when I thought about doing this book and thought about doing a memoir uh, structure, I, I thought, well, let me think back, you know, to these different stages of my own development and try to understand how Jesus showed up, who, what my primary image was for Jesus at each different of these periods of my life. I don't really want to stay stages because that sounds like you, sure. you know, go from one stage and yep. then you, you graduate yep. finally. Um, <laughs> we transcend and include is how we say that. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and, and that's okay. I yep. like transcend and include, but yep. sometimes the stages of faith stuff gets us to like, oh, well, stage five is better than stage one you yep. know, kind of thing. Yep. Strokes the ego. Uh, Right. And so, um, but so I actually had uh, six pieces of paper lying on my desk and I roughly divided my life into these six periods. Mm -hmm. And the first one was um, what I called pre-literate Diana. Uh, (laughs) This is, this is Diana before she's five years old. And I can, you know, when I was working on this book, I wanted with each one of these pieces of paper in front of me, I, I, I did an exercise with myself and I, I thought, what is my, my first or my strongest memory of Jesus from this particular period? And when I thought about me before I ever read the Bible, before I knew how to read, uh, before I had any kind of theological awareness, before I ever knew or recited a creed, I knew Jesus' name. I can't remember a time I did not know Jesus' name. And my clearest memory from those days is sitting in Methodist Sunday school basement. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in our little classroom, our little preschool classroom. And we were in a circle. I was in a circle with all these other friends of mine on the floor. And it's the early 1960s. And the teacher was, her name was Miss Jean. She was sitting in a little teeny tiny chair um, like they have in those kinds of classrooms. And she was telling us a story about how Jesus welcomed all the little children. And she held up a picture and the picture was Jesus. And Jesus was surrounded by this group of kids. And in the, in the painting, um, there was a little girl and she was blonde haired and blue eyed like I am. And of course, like every little girl was 2000 years ago in ancient Israel. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and I, I recognized her. I thought there I am. Hmm. I'm I'm in the picture. And uh, that goes a lot to say about representation, even with the little, little tiny kids, you know, mirrored to you. Right. And so I saw myself in the picture and that little girl had her head laying on Jesus shoulder and it was at that moment that I recognized that I was Jesus' friend hmm. and Jesus had wanted to be my friend. And so from that early memory, and, and this is the way each chapter really unfolds, I, I put out the dominant memory from that time period and I tell it as close as I can yeah. in the voice of who I was at that moment. Yeah. So to try to go back and figure out how to write a grown-up book <laughs> with a three or four-year-old's yeah. voice yeah. Um, inno- was really tough. Innocence, yeah, to recapture that innocence. Y- yeah, there's an innocence, and there's also, I think, a little sense of a nostalgia there yeah. Yeah. about the Methodist Sunday School basement of the you know, of 1962 or 1963, whenever that was. And so I have that piece. And then 
I tell that story in that little girl voice, but then I bring in 62 year old Diana, yep. uh, which is, I was writing this book when I was 60, 61. I just turned 62. So I was bringing in grown up Diana to engage those memories. Mm-hmm. And so I go between the three year old and then to the person who is a, a scholar who's been on this journey for six uh, decades and try to understand this idea more deeply. Um, And in this case about friend. And and I I think for me, the sort of center point of this chapter comes when I uh, tell, um, I'm talking about one definition of friendship that comes from a psychologist who said that children understand friendship understand a friend as someone you can trust and someone you can play with. And that becomes kind of the theological thread that I pull on for the rest of the chapter, um, how the word friend shows up in both Hebrew scriptures and in the new Testament. And that it's always about a God who is both trustworthy and fun to play with. Mm. Well, well, and what a beautiful, like, I'm just even thinking of this as a writing practice for you, you know, to 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 go back and write in that voice and then to mm-hmm. uh, put a bow on it in this voice, you know, it is, uh, I'm sure that was super challenging and yet ridiculously <laughs> rewarding, you know, you know. Kind of this. Well, what it, what it became for me, and I'm really hoping as this book gets out into people's hands, um, I, you know, when I get to go on the road again and yeah. talk, to, as I talk to more and more people, what, what the whole thing, the whole process became for me was like a gigantic kind of um, spiritual retreat hmm. where I reclaimed my own voice from yeah. childhood and other ports, parts of my life. And then was able to sort of dive more deeply into that. And it became an incredibly healing mm-hmm. and very informative mm-hmm. um, sort of uh, spiritual practice. I, I've referred to it with some of my friends as it was almost like doing a life examine. Yeah. And, the, you know, the Jesuits have this practice yep. where they. Yeah, the prayer of examine. Right. And they review every day. Yep. Um, and I love that practice and I, I do some level of that most days myself, but this became more about not just a day, but I was literally reviewing my life and it wound up being incredibly worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. In, in your own faith journey, as you've taken this practice and you've gone back and seen Jesus through the eyes and experience uh, and maybe even like spiritual palate, maybe that's a phrase I could use, that that you were in that season of life, has it also helped you um, maybe hold some folks that you've crossed paths with with a bit more grace who maybe they're just in the season of friend and they haven't kind of moved. I, I think the further I'm with you on watch, watch out with using the phrase stage, because anything the ego can grab onto that is numeric and up and to the right, uh, it will do, <laughs> right? Um, but but has has this granted you a little ease to, uh, you know, maybe, because we all don't see the world the same way. Uh, and right. my goodness, we may not all uh, experience Jesus in the same way. And And I think that that's a pivotal point in this book that you maybe didn't specifically come out and say, but that is an invitation to the reader of all of this is mirroring, right? Jesus was mirrored as friend. Jesus was mirrored as teacher. Some people haven't been mirrored these things, and we need a little bit of that space and grace to kind of hold those people where, unfortunately, we've been taught, right, to point out they're not there. They don't understand that. They think it's these three checkboxes. That becomes less and less interesting the more I think you kind of ground yourself in a practice like this. Uh, um, at the very last, in the acknowledgement section, there have been a few reviewers who have pointed out that I say thank you um, in the acknowledgements to groups and 
people who I depict in the narrative who obviously did things to me that were hurtful. Hmm. And that came out of my capacity, the capacity that I developed out of this book was uh, both a kind of ability to look at others and, and just sort of recognize where other people were. Um, but it also gave me a sense of self-forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And for me, at least, the self-forgiveness was a path towards accepting where other people live. So uh, for the, the chapters that three, four, and five um, are mostly about experiences that I had within white evangelical, very conservative communities. Yep. Yep. Chapter five makes a break with that, but the first part of the chapter is still within that world. And then the second part of the chapter moves uh, some to a different place. But um, so, so there's this really substantial part of the narrative that takes place in a Bible church, um, in a Christian college where I have very mixed experiences and very mixed emotions about being part of their community. And then the seminary experience that I had, which I actually hated. And, um, and, and it was, it was hurtful um, to me. Yet at the end of the book, I, 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 I just, after I had done this work and looked back at myself, I realized that part of my anger at them was the fact that I, I, I sort of felt ashamed hmm. uh, that I had participated in these communities and that, you know, I had believed the things that they told me to believe and I had believed them willingly and I had chosen those things. And now, I mean, the, many of those things that I did believe were things that actually hurt other people. Mm. And so I, I, I didn't want to accept, I think my own responsibility for my choices at that t- those times in my life. And um, I wanted to deflect it, you know, so it, the, the fault became that of white ev- conservative white evangelicals, not me. Oh, they deluded me. Mm. They didn't teach me what they should have taught me. And so, so, and those things are true. And I realize how much pain there is with so many people who grew up in those kinds of fundamentalist type communities, especially LGBTQ people. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of suffering that has gone along with those communities for some. But for me, I discovered that part of the suffering was of my own making mm. because I had not dealt deeply enough with my own responsibility. Mm. So, so I went back to that. And once I saw uh, that, I I let 15-year-old Diana off the hook. (laughs) And once I let 15-year-old Diana off the hook, all of a sudden, I was able to say thank you to that church where I had that conversion experience. Show the wound and say shalom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's a pretty fantastic phrase. I didn't know that. And um, and that's really what I, I think that's really what I did. And so so in that, it just also made me say people are just wherever they are. Yeah. You know, and that all of our journeys are somewhat different. And even though we're going after what I would hope is the heart of the same Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe that that means that Jesus is all compassion and all love all the time, eternal compassion, eternal love, eternal acceptance. Um, So we're all actually going toward that same Jesus and, Mm. and we don't always know that. Mm. And so, so I just, I, I, I just, I got a lot, more sanguine about, about this right now. And it's weird, frankly, because every day you can go on the internet, you just open up Twitter and you can find probably 10, 15, 20 threads of people who are talking about how evil white evangelical Christianity is and how it's the, the whole problem um, in American culture today. And while I certainly understand the critiques those people are making and understand how that tradition has contributed to racism and white supremacy and all kinds of other things. Um, my heart space is not in the place of, of attacking them. Hmm. My heart space is in the place of 
remembering why I walked that path and what it did for me um, at, a, at some important junctures of my life yep. and why it was so important. And so that then begins to open me up towards some different kinds of conversations. Yep. Yep. Well said. Um, very well said. Uh, I know that was a very long question I gave you. So um, I, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because I don't want sure. to give the whole book away. I want people to go, go buy the book. My favorite, uh, I think, chapter was Way. And oh, um, that's the hardest one. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, uh, yes, it is suffering the hero's journey. Uh, I, I, my notes here when I was reading, um, you you do a beautiful job of introducing Jesus as way. Um, you, you come right out and say, the invitation here is to understand way through the lens of journey and not necessarily destination. Um, hold my hand on this because uh, a lot of people have just written a Jesus prescription, right? Take two pills of Jesus a day and it's all good. You know, uh, there's your hell insurance and whatever else. I, I love this thing of way because this is the path. This is the path of transformation. This is... Uh, you got to lose your you lose your life to find it. I mean, there's a there's there's a lot going on in this chapter. Um, talk to me about you knowing Jesus as way. Oh, I, in a certain senses, um, as I just mentioned, that was the hardest chapter to write. Mm. You know, it's easy to write about preliterate Diana and think about yourself with your Barbie dolls and baby Jesus. You know, <laughs> and it's also not so bad thinking about Jesus in terms of schooling. You know teacher yeah. and remembering about uh, about the the power of the first lessons you ever learned in life yeah. and then to forgive myself around uh, my teenage conversion experience jesus is savior and to like 15 year old diana and even co my college experience at an evangelical college was there's a kind of a naivete about that chapter that I really love because it's when you are in those first stages of adulthood and you think that everything is possible. Right. And so you do all kinds of crazy and stupid things um, to follow your bliss, yep. you know, when you're in your early twenties. Yep. And so, and so, so those chapters were not that bad um, to write in terms of memory, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but this one takes place largely when, it starts about the time I'm 25 and moves up to um, about the time I'm 35. And what the main settings were for this chapter uh, were seminary, graduate school, and then my, my first job teaching back at the same college mm. where I had been a student. And so it's this, you know, sort of professional you're beginning that yep. professional development. Yep. And so so part of life right then for people who live in Western society, of course, and who are mostly middle class and older or middle class and above are the, that professional highway, you know, is that we're trying to find the way that we're going to fit in the world. Yep. You know, what is our what is our life calling? And that's what I was doing. And for me, uh, Jesus fit in that. And. So the contention over those three, three locations in that 10-year period of my life was the fact that I ran into, um, in seminary, a group of Christians who were convinced, literally, that there is only one way. And the way involves uh, a destination. Now, I don't know that it's all that different. You know, Christians often say there's only one way, you know. But this was a very sort of constricted theological vision of what was correct doctrine, what was a correct political um, agenda, uh, what was the, the best way to, the, the one way to pray, what is the one true church. Um, and so the idea of Jesus being the way had not only become Jesus is the only way or there's one way to God, the way that Christians often speak in this in sort of a general term, but it was like th they knew every marker along that way. Mm. 
and you had to follow all of those markers. And then when you get to the end of that, you have lived a faithful life that has glorified God and you find yourself among the chosen um, who will go uh, to heaven. And so I, I found comfort in that in my late 20s. And um, there was a kind of a clarity. And I was in my mid to late 20s in the mid to late 1980s. And that was a really conflicted time. Um, You know, if you look back at history of the Reagan era, the Reagan presidency in particular, you know, in 19, I think it was 1983, they almost pushed the nuclear button. There was, we were that close Mm. to the world being completely destroyed. And People, people knew this. I, I remember at the time having just huge nightmares about nuclear holocaust. And there was a huge amount of fear in the culture. Um, you know, it was a very uh, upsetting sort of time economically. Uh, when I graduated from college, for example, uh, the interest rates, the mortgage rates on houses was 18%. Right. Crazy. You know. Yeah, so I thought to myself, you know, this is in 1981, you know, how in the world am I ever going to buy a house, you know, with 18% mortgage rate, you know, and so it makes me also very sympathetic with the plight of millennials right now. I'm not quite sure that millennials always understand how, what a horrible, devastated economy people like myself who are now, you know, right around 60, we're facing when we graduated from college, it was Yep. It was horrible. There were no jobs. Uh, unemployment was over 13%. I mean, it was brutal. And so there was this economic devastation. There was racial tension. There was this absolute horror of instantaneous destruction of the world uh, by nuclear holocaust. And so all of that was happening. And to feel like Jesus is the way, and not only that, but this way has really clear directions on it. Very concrete. Yeah. Oh my God. It was like a relief. You know, it was like the uh, well, at least one certainty. at least one thing is clear. Cer- certitude in the midst of massive uncertainty. Yeah. And so so that became a theological path that I followed for a time. And once I got pretty far down that path. Um, I realized that the path was actually, it was self-abusive. And that wasn't a path of love. It was a path of fear. No, it was not a path of love. It was not a path of real freedom. It was a path of actually the further you got on that path, the narrower it became. Hmm. And and it was devastating for me because that's also the time which I entered into my first marriage. I uh, went off to graduate school at Duke and was, you know, beginning to try to understand the shape of my professional life and making choices related to that. And so, so I get pretty far down that path when all of a sudden um, I start asking questions about the whole enterprise and the questions at that point I was so afraid of what everybody around me would think because everybody now that I know is all on the same path. And so to begin to ask questions of this was to separate myself from my friends, from my mentoring professors, from the people that I trusted for professional advice, the people, my own husband. Hmm. Had to leave the village. Yeah, and nobody wanted to hear my questions. And so I I ask questions inwardly. Um, but, you know, inward questions, boy, that just is really hard. And so I talk about what that did to me and how this, I mean, it, it, it really devolved into a mental illness for me, this path towards this, this kind of theology. And um, so I talk a lot about therapy in that chapter and who, who my therapist was and how he helped me. And um, that was a redirection. And then I realized that I had to rethink this whole thing. You know, I had to figure out what the journey really was. And so, so I 
I turn around and I try to go back to the place where my road split and I chose the wrong direction. And um, getting to that point where you can get to the other road is not easy, mm-hmm. but I, but I did. And that's the, and the chapter ends with being in an entirely different place and understanding the word way, not as a destination or these very clear signposts of doctrine, polity, uh, political activity, et cetera. But instead understanding the way and more like a, a labyrinth is yep. the image that I use at the end of the book. And so there's a way in and there's a way out and then there's a way in. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, so that Jesus as the way is a much more a fluid invitation than the idea of one way. Mm-hmm. It's not an exclusive kind of invitation, but it's an invitation when Jesus says, I am the way. It's, a, it's an invitation of, unless you are, unless I have become the way, there is, you, you just won't find your, 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 you won't find your bearings on, yeah. in this life. You won't find, and so it's, it's not like Jesus is concerned about you know, how Muslims, Buddhists, and Jews get to heaven. It's really Jesus being concerned that God has made a way Mm. for us to discover the love of God. And you can't just read about it. You, this is, this is a journey that we all have to walk it. Yep. Yep. You have to walk it. And so the, so the, I think that you're, the image of way is very, it's very concrete. And the whole thing, uh, just somebody tweeted at me yesterday that they were on the edge of their seat reading that chapter. And they said that they knew where it was going to turn out because they know the books I've written. So they were confident I'd be okay. But I wrote, I wrote that chapter in the voice of that incredibly hurt, lost, Mm woman. And that's the the irony of it is that there's a certain kind of Christianity that says Jesus is the way. And, you know, there's only one way. And yet it was when I was following that kind of Christianity that I was the most lost I had ever been in my entire life. Well, well, which I guess opens you up to that final chapter of, of, of presence, which is kind of parentheses mystery, right? Um, I mean, I think, um, and the other thing too is navigating way and moving to presence. It it sounds like some of that certainty is always chaotic and complicated, and and, <laughs> and what the soul what the soul longs for and knows to be true is always simple and quiet. Which I think is what we get to at presence. Right? Is that um, we make it all too difficult getting to know who this Jesus is. And at the, at, at the end, I think you arrive at a very simple and quiet place in the book um, that kind of comes full circle back to joyful friend, right? Um, well, it really does. And you're, and you're the first person to say that to me on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've always had to be the person to say that, but you saw it. Well, let's go. We're high-fiving <laughs> through the, the microphone here. I love it. That's right. And what what it does, I think, at the end of the book is the primary image in the last chapter is uh, that of birth. Right. And so, you know, once you've been on the wrong way and you're on a new way, then your life is rebirthed. And so I I talk about that from a, a number of different angles. And the fact that, you know, even in scripture itself, the idea of being born again, the idea of being birthed is is a mystery. You know, even yeah. when Jesus is supposedly explaining that to people who are asking him, um, Jesus says some pretty crazy things about that about wind and water and and fire and stuff and so so i use a plethora really of images i think there's more than a a dozen images in the last chapter about presence because presence seems you know sort of you know miss ghostly you know and so and so i i'm i'm saying that presence is a real thing um it's even though the word itself seems ethereal, that it's actually becomes embodied in our lives through stuff like 
giving birth and stuff like sitting on a porch swing or hanging out with uh, little kids or uh, more dramatically uh, being in essentially an earthquake in New Mexico. And, um, and so, so the presence of God is both a mystical reality and yet it is deeply embodied in our experiences as human beings. And so I try to unpack that in a literary sense, very much in the kind of uh, way I now, and so that's really, the, that part of the book yeah. carries me from about age 40 until about five or so years ago. Um, and so how I've experienced uh, Jesus in this last decade and a half is, pointed toward, um, not explained in complete detail, but pointed toward in a literary fashion in the end of the book, and very much the voice that I use in writing and preaching, and people will recognize that voice yeah. um, if they know my work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this journey that, that you kind of gave us, um, beginning at friend and ending at presence, you, it, it's, I think another lens or another kind of description of it would be, you know, beginning at this individual place of understanding and then being led to the universal, right? We get it. We got to get it in this small form and then we can get it in the great big form. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and then the irony is that carries us back that's, to the, to the memory of the first thing. That's right. And we experience the first thing the most intimate thing differently. That's right. Because, That's of, right. because of the journey. Yeah. And all of a sudden, um, you know, one of my favorite lyrics uh, guy once wrote was, you know, I want to go back to innocent and never leave. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I love that whole idea and innocent having, you know, this connotation of being without wound. Um, and guess what? I mean, this book is the pattern of everything, right? You're, you're talking about a life of resurrection. You're talking about, um, a life of seeing things anew, that serving a season, and then it becoming a winter, and then that moves to spring and summer again. It's a pattern <laughs> of everything, right? Um, this is how reality works. You end the book so beautifully um, with going, but hey guys, let's not, let's not forget about the universal Jesus. Um, as we wrap up this conversation here, um, how would you in, in just a snippet, kind of offer that aspect of the book as an invitation um, to those who maybe may not identify at all within our tradition, and maybe some of, a, some of us that, that, that would identify, you know, within the Jesus tradition, Christian faith that you and I do. Well, the last chapter is called Universal Jesus. A, a couple of people have asked me the question, why didn't you call it Universal Christ? And I, I've said, well, for one, uh, Richard Rohr just wrote, <laughs> just wrote that book. And uh, the, the other piece is I wanted to retain through this whole book the intimacy of Jesus. So to put the word universal and Jesus together, Jesus' name. It reminds us of, you know, Jesus, the human being, the, yeah. the intimate, the intimate Jesus. And so I didn't want to go toward Christ, which has always seemed kind of, uh, for me, a, a title that, you know, what does it mean to worship a cosmic Christ? Oh my God. You know, I can't even begin to think about that. Yeah. It's so huge. And, and it so never makes sense here. We always got to get it in here. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And and I, I do get it. And yeah. I understand what the people written about that are going for, but I wanted to hold on and play with the idea of both universal and intimate at the same time. So that's why I called it universal Jesus. And, um, I think that that chapter is best seen as a sort of a parenthesis to the friend chapter. Mm. So we talked about the opening of the book with the get me out of here yeah. story, which is in the introduction. But the other real setup story for the whole book is at the very beginning of chapter one, where I'm sitting in the Sunday school circle. Yep. Yeah with all the little three-year-olds with Miss Jean and the little picture of Jesus in this incredibly safe space. And that Sunday school, uh, that church was it founded by my great grandparents. Wow. I mean, this is like a family church in a neighborhood where my relatives had lived for uh, decades and decades, generations. And the, everybody in that neighborhood knew me. 
um, and knew my family. And so, so this is a place of utter safety where in 1960, like I said, 1962, 1963, um, a little girl was born being fully known into a world uh, where she fully knew Jesus. Mm. And so you think about how, I mean, the nostalgia there is enormous, but it's also, I mean, what a world, what yeah. a universe. Yeah. And so the way Universal Jesus chapter opens is I'm sitting in a circle and uh, it's not a Methodist Sunday school room anymore, but it's a circle on stage at the 19, excuse me, 2015 World's Parliament of Religions. Yeah. And it was the women's assembly that convened in anticipation of, of the um, large parliament. And so they gathered women first and there were 3000 women in this huge room and the opening service in the event was 20 women from all these different religious traditions and a whole bunch of musicians uh, that would join us at various places. And we spent several hours opening the parliament by telling our stories. And so I was in this circle of women, these 20 women who were each giving a 10 to 15 minute talk on our tradition and how our tradition was liberation for us. And so there I was in a circle. And at this point, it's a, a room of the world. Women of every religion, every color, every possible age. I mean, <laughs> babies to, you know, women in their, their 80s and 90s. And I was one of only two Christians on that stage. It was wow. me and a woman who was a Mormon, and we were representing all however many billion Christian women there are in the world. And I was sitting um, between, uh, on one side was a, a, a woman who was Wiccan, and the other side was uh, Deepak Chopra's daughter, okay. Hindu. And then right next to her, so this is the four of us in this sort of part of the circle, right next to her was... Um, uh, Malcolm X's granddaughter. Wow. What a circle. And yeah, uh, it was amazing. And I got up and I gave my presentation and the room just, it, the room just roared. And um, so that's my life was mm -hmm. going from the intimacy of the Sunday school room where I knew Jesus and was known by everyone there the safety of that small circle through my life to this other circle where I was still known hmm. and I still knew Jesus but you know ultimately you look at that and you think wow I could never do that you know it doesn't seem safe you know to be around that much uh diversity yep. and that unfamiliar setting, Salt Lake City, what am I doing here? And yet Jesus was there too. And so that's the story I tell of between those two circles and the universal Jesus. Um, I, I, that's the Jesus that I know right now. And the Jesus that's always calling me into someplace that is somewhat uncomfortable. And often with people who I don't know and who don't know me, uh, but nevertheless, Jesus still shows up. Yep. Well, beautiful. So well said, as always. Um, and that is the work. That is your work in the world, I believe. Is uh, if I could, if I could say this as a, uh, uh, I hope you receive this as a compliment. Diana Butler Bass writes words that keep setting a bigger and more beautiful table, um, and. Uh, those words have been helpful for me, and I know they've been helpful for so many other people. Um, freeing Jesus. Here it is. Um, you guys, make sure you go get a copy of this. Um, Diana, as always, I'm super grateful for you and your work, and uh, you have a you have an open seat here anytime you want it. So um, thank you for, again for coming on, and, and always for your graciousness and generosity in sharing with us. Well, I have loved... Uh 
your insight into this book and when great readers share their responses like you did, it helps me understand my work more deeply. And that's a gift to me. So, and, and that thing about the table, yeah. that's the nicest thing anybody could say about my work. <laughs> so thank so thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Well, that's, it's true. Um, so thankful. Uh, thank you for showing us the way. Uh, thank you for embodying uh, a life that is a reflection of Jesus and who he is. And um, keep putting out good work. And we'll just have you on here every time you do it. You know you've got a spot. So uh, grace <laughs> and peace you. to you and yours. And uh, thank you always. <laughs>